If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to study an incredible time that is uh, just throughout the scriptures. It's called the Millennium. The title of our message is the 1,000-year reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20. I hear music. Rigo? It was heaven. Heaven's in my ear. Praise Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time that we have together. Pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Four views on the millennium. So, Cindy, we're going to start with that. We're going to study the millennium. It's a time where a thousand year reign in Christ, and there are four different views. We're going to open up with the four different views. Let me see if I don't get lost here. Um, I wanted to start with, what did I tell you? Historical premillennialism. Nice. Historical pre... um, Acts chapter 17 tells us to be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so that the apostles were sharing. So I want to encourage you. There's four different views on the millennium. Millennium means mill... Ennium, 1,000 years. So there's a 1,000-year rule or reign of Jesus Christ. And there are four different views. It's eschatology, the study of the last days or the end times. And it's, there's not, it's not essential that you believe it in any one of these ways. There's room to believe it in all four. Um, I'll show you the one that we believe as far as what I've studied And obviously, we can agree to disagree, but it's important what you believe about the end times. So let's take a look at this first one. Historical premillennialists place the return of Christ just before the millennium and just after a time of great apostasy and tribulation. After the millennium, Satan will be loosed and Gog and Magog will rise against the kingdom of God. This will be immediately followed by the final judgment while similar in some respects to the dispensational variety in that they hold to Christ's return being previous to to the establishment of a thousand-year earthly reign, historical premillennial, I can't say these words, differ in significant ways, notably in their method of interpreting scriptures. That's important to note. I'll kind of tie it all together as we look at these. The next one is post-millennialism. The post-millennialist believes that the millennium is an error, era, not a literal thousand years during which Christ will reign over the earth, not from an, an literal and earthly throne, but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change lives. After this gradual Christianization of the world, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked this is called postmillennialism because by its view, Christ will return after the millennium. Next one is the amillennialism. 
Notice it says also termed nunc millennialism or inaugurated millennialism. The amillennialist believes that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, hence the term inaugurated millennialism, at which point he gained victory over both Satan and the cursed. Christ is even now reigning, hence the term nunc millennialism. Nunc means now at the right hand of the Father over his church. After this present age has ended, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. The term amillennialism is actually a misnomer, for it implies that Revelation 21 through 6 is ignored. In fact, the amillennialist hermeneutic interprets it and, in fact, much of the apocalyptic literature non-literally. So again, that's just another view. Our last one is the one that I hold to, and it's called dispensational premillennialism. Yes. Dispensational premillennialists hold that Christ will come before a seven-year period of intense tribulation to take his church, living and dead, into heaven. After this period of fulfillment of divine wrath, he shall then return to rule from a holy city, i.e. the new Jerusalem, over the earthly nations for 1,000 years. After these 1,000 years, Satan, who was bound up during Christ's earthly reign, will be loosed to deceive the nations, gather an army of the deceived, and take up to battle against the Lord. This battle will end in both the judgment of the wicked and Satan and the entrance into the eternal state of glory by the righteous. This view is called premillennialism because it places the return of Christ before the millennium and it is called dispensational because it is founded in the doctrines of dispensationalism. All right, so those are the four views I said that we hold, or at least I hold, to the dispensational premillennialism. And the reason I do that is because in studying, if you were to hold to any one of the other three, the Bible is not literal. Israel is no longer under the promises of God. The Genesis chapter 12 promise that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, specifically speaking of the nation of Israel, really there's no reason to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so all of that combined is, is why I hold to this. As I see what took place in Exodus under the curses that fell upon Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt, were those figurative things that took place or were they literal? I saw them as literal. They actually happened. The water turned into blood. There were lice and flies or fleas and, or whatever there was, all these plagues, frogs and all of these different things. And so when we begin to pick and choose, and this is what I've noticed as I studied the different beliefs, when we begin to pick and choose which portions of the scripture we want to take literal and which ones we want to take figurative, then we become, I guess, the authorities of uh, the scriptures. And the scriptures are the authority over us. And there's a rule in studying the Bible. If the main sense makes sense, seek no other sense lest you come up with nonsense. The book of Revelation is the most um, debatable book in all of the Bible because it talks about things yet future. And um, if, again, that main sense is making sense, 
then let's leave it alone and just let God speak for himself. Remember at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, it says, whoever adds to these promises or to these things, um, then I will add to him the curses within this book. Whoever takes away from these things, then I will take away his name in the book of life. And so we don't want to add to God's word. We don't want to subtract to God's word. Two big, gigantic words in Bible study. One is isogesis. The other is exegesis. To isogete, I-S-O-G-E-T-E, to isogete a passage means that I'm going to come to the scriptures with a preconceived idea and I'm going to read into the Bible. I'm going to read into the Bible my opinion, my understanding. We're not supposed to do that. To exegete a passage, E-X-E-G-E-T-E, to exegete is to draw out. Let God's word speak for itself. Let God's word speak what it says, and we simply accept it as thus saith the Lord. So we're going to go through Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and this is um, one of many sections of Scripture that deal with the millennium. And we're just going to take it verse by verse. I'll break it down a little, and then we'll close with an application so that we can recognize what God would have us to do with this information. Now, I will say this, if you've had a tough week, tough day, tough life, the millennium is something to look very much forward to. If you've ever prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you have specifically prayed that the millennium rule and reign of Jesus Christ would come to this earth. Because that's exactly what it's referring to. That God's rule on earth would be as it is in heaven. Some of these other beliefs are saying that Satan is currently bound. If Satan is bound right now, he has a lot of room to do a lot of bad. And so I don't believe that for a moment that Satan is bound currently. Just so that it's on the recording, I'm going to list some of the other scriptures that, are, that relate to the millennium. And if you ever want to go back and listen to the message, you go online to cclivingwater.net and we post all of the messages. But other scriptures relating to the millennium are Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45, Psalm 2, verses 5 through 12, Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, Zechariah chapter 14. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, we read it. Isaiah chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And this section of scripture that we're going to look at right now, Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut up and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. We went through those verses last week. We learned that Satan is bound By not an archangel, not a named angel, not a multitude or a legion of angels, but by one unnamed angel with one hand. One hand from this angel is able to get Satan and bind him in the bottomless pit. 
We have the struggle at times thinking that there's this cosmic battle between God and Satan and that they are both equal or close to being equal. But the Bible declares that nothing could be further from the truth. Satan is simply a created being and believe it or not, the evil that he reaps in the world of individuals can be turned around for good if those individuals will look to God as opposed to look away from God. And that is the recipe for all of us. If we look to God in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our tribulation, we will grow better. If we look away from God in the midst of those trials and tribulations, we will grow bitter. And so it's up to us how we want to respond in the midst of the difficulties that take place in our lives. God wants to show himself strong to us and then through us to an unbelieving world and even to believers as well, that we would be the light of the world and that men would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven as we look to the Lord. And so you have within just Christianity individuals that I know you've seen who you look at the difficulties they go through and you wonder, wow, I, I just, I don't get it. How can they do that? They are going through these difficulties, but they are shining. They are an incredible example of what it means to be a Christian. Those individuals are looking to the Lord and God is simply flexing his muscles through them. It's not God versus Satan. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, the Bible says, Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. In contrast, Isaiah 14, 16 says regarding Satan, Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? We're going to look at Satan and say, wow, this is this incredible enemy. Nothing to be impressed with. Last week, I talked to you guys about how we bind Satan. And binding Satan is not simply yelling words and in prayer, but binding Satan is actually, or binding the enemy in our life is actually doing good to our enemy and so oftentimes we struggle with people in this world and we think that we need to burn them or get them or, or get even and get, be vengeful towards them. The Bible teaches nothing of the sort. In Romans chapter 12, let me read you verses 17 through 21. It says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so that's how we bind the enemy. We do good to people. Verses 4 and 5, it says, I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And so in that first resurrection, there will be a group of individuals 
who did all of these things that are mentioned in verse 4 and more so. Yesterday at the baptism, I mentioned how individuals in the Old Testament got saved by looking forward to the Messiah or to the cross. How do we get saved after Jesus has died on the cross? We look backwards to something in history that has already taken place to the cross. So we get saved by what? The cross, looking to Jesus. Old Testament saints look to Jesus. New Testament saints look to Jesus and the cross. So this first resurrection begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23 says, But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. It continues on to include those who believe in Jesus but died before the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Um, believers who are alive at the time of the rapture as well, verse 17 in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall all always be with the Lord. Those who are martyred in the tribulation for their refusal to take the mark of the beast. We read that in verse 4 in Revelation chapter 20. And the Old Testament saints who believed in Yahweh but did not have the opportunity to be part of the church because they died before Jesus came. So the first resurrection speaks of all those who are included in the grand plan of salvation. That's all the people that are going to be living at this time in um, this resurrection. Verse 6 goes on to say, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Six times the word thousand years is mentioned in this chapter. And for some reason, there are those who believe that it's figurative. Why would the Holy Spirit put it in this chapter that many times unless it were something that was actually going to happen? Verse 7 says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So now there's this interesting thing. We as Christians will be raptured before the tribulation period. Seven years of hell will break out on this earth. The first three and a half years will be a false peace where one will come and he'll offer a peace solution to the Middle East. He'll unite Arab and Jewish nation and they'll, they'll come and there'll be this pseudo peace. At the three and a half year mark, this individual called the Antichrist will come in the temple, set himself up to be worshipped. They will... Um, they will recognize him for what he is, and Israel will turn from him and flee to Petra, the rock city. And individuals who feed them, give them a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, will be blessed, as it says in the parable in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. I think it's Matthew 25 specifically. And then they will endure. If um, they do not receive the mark of the beast, it's a mark that they will receive on their wrist 
or on their forehead. And without that, they will not be able to buy or sell. So they will have to live off the land. They'll have to live uh, out in the wilderness and flee from the powers that be during that last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period. And if they get through to that without receiving that mark, then those as well will go through now into the millennium age. Christians who were raptured will rule and reign on the earth during that time. The way we do that is you're faithful with what God has placed in front of you, and that faithfulness will reward you in the millennium kingdom. Unfaithfulness means no reigning or reigning or ruling over very little. And so this life that you've been given has been given to you in preparation for that which is coming. The Bible says in 1 Peter that the earth will melt with fervent heat. And so we can see right now the stage being set for nuclear war. It will be World War III. At some point, I'm praying that we'll be raptured prior to this. That will begin to take place. We'll see all of the plagues of Revelations chapters 6 through 19, as we've already read through. Um, We'll be in heaven, those who are raptured, for a seven-year honeymoon with Jesus, our our groom. We are the bride of Christ. On the second coming, we'll return with him, judge the nations, and then this millennium will kick off. Some ask, as it says in this verse, Why would God only bind Satan for a thousand years during this time and not cast him into the lake of fire forever and ever? It says right here that he's loosed for a moment. Individuals will be born in the millennium. We read in Isaiah chapter 65 that a hundred years will be a baby age. So it will be like Adam and Eve as they lived to 900 years. Again, incredible to fathom, incredible to think about, but again, as we understand the scriptures and allow the literal understanding of what God is saying to be take place, I think people who are either intellectual or think that they know better than God try to outsmart or outfigure God. Again, I just allow the word to speak for itself. I think Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 is proof positive that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9 deals with Israel's past. Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel's present. And Romans chapter 11 deals with Israel's future. And it says that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. God's not taking back his promises from the nation of Israel. And if he took them from the nation of Israel, as did Augustine teach in 4th century AD, and this is where it comes from. Amillennialism comes from Augustine. Catholicism had taken over. Constantine took all of the Babylonian religions and he had married it. So the state and the church was married in the state church. Catholicism began to take off and things looked so good during that time on the earth as far as the church was concerned that Catholicism wiped out all of the promises to the nation of Israel and said, no, those promises are for us, the church. And then when things got to get began to get really bad, people began to wonder, well, maybe there is some other interpretation than what's taking place or what we've studied. And so again, I don't think God's done with Israel. I believe that God is going to flex his muscles through this little tiny nothing nation because he has promised Abraham that it was an eternal promise. 
And the land that he had given him is going to be given to them. And so it would behoove us as Christians to be in prayer for the nation of Israel, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and to recognize that if God took away those promises from Israel, what makes us think that he won't take them away from us? Are we better than the nation of Israel, who is the apple of his eye according to the Old Testament? So we need to be very careful how we study the scriptures, what our interpretation of the scriptures are, and ultimately, what does this mean for us? This means that this life that God has given us is in preparation for the life yet to come. And by being faithful with this life and the things that God has placed in front of us, we will be ruling and reigning over cities in the millennium. Verse 8 um, or 9 goes on to say, They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved, where am I? Yeah, the city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So why is Satan let out for a small season? Those people that are living in the millennium, that are born in the millennium, never had a true chance to choose God with the temptation of Satan wooing them and drawing them to give them a true choice for God. Without the subtlety and deception of Satan, the true choice to choose God and to move in his direction um, cannot really be known. If you really don't have a choice, if I take a gun to my wife's head and I say, marry me or die, does she really have much of a choice? If I'm the only man on the face of the planet and I tell her, hey, marry me, does she really have a choice in the matter? Satan gives people a choice to freely choose whether they want to move in the direction of God or not. God does everything he can within his power, short of forcing somebody and their free will, but drawing them to himself. And Satan gives an opposing uh, choice for them to make. The absence of God is what people who do not want God will get. God is perfect health and peace. People will spend eternity in hell in torment without God. The presence of God, the Bible declares, is light. Hell is considered outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so people who do not want health, people who do not want light, people who do not want a relationship with the Father will be isolated by themselves in eternity, forever and ever, as these last words say, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the strongest words in the Greek that can mean for eternity, forever and ever, from the ages to the ages, literally is how it reads. Let's close with Luke chapter 19, and we will see our application for what we're supposed to be doing as we look forward to what God is going to do. Acts chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm in Luke. In Matthew chapter 610, I mentioned to you when we pray that um, your kingdom, our Father in heaven, holy be your name, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the millennium. We're praying for Christ's rule on this earth. And in that first verse in, in Revelation chapter 20, he said it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This world is going to be wiped away in a nuclear war. It's, it's going to disintegrate. It's going to melt with fervent heat, as the book of Peter says. So it's going to be gone. God's going to create an Edenic, like Eden world, and we're going to be blessed in it. It's an incredible thing. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. The parable of the minas speak of the equal opportunity of life that we all have. In contrast to the parable of the talents, where individuals were given talents based on what they could do, mina, everyone was given one mina. Some showed to be more faithful, uh, being able to turn that one mina into ten. Another individual was given that same one mina. He turned it into five, and another one hid it. Having a misunderstanding of who God was. And that's what it comes down to. Individuals are living their lives based on what they understand about the God of the scriptures. And everybody is living by faith. The Bible declares in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has given to every man a measure of faith. The deception that Satan plays in the midst of all of that is what we participate and cooperate with. Individuals who name the name of Christ and are living in sin don't understand the incredible gift that God has given us within his word. Marriages that are struggling do not understand 
that through obedience to what God has called us to within those relationships, there are incredible blessings that are in store. And think of how subtle Satan is to bring these deceptions and to think that we're winning when we're living in sin, when all the while we're losing. We're losing. We're not living for eternal things. We're living for the temporal. We're living for things that we can figure out within our minds. And it's all deception. And Satan is good at what he does. He's been practicing it for quite a while. He has studied you. He has studied me. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the propensities and the desires that, that, that are within you. Deep within, He knows your childhood. He knows the struggles that you've been through. He knows the hurts and the pains. He knows how you're wired and he's studied you. And his job is simple. It's deception. It's to make something look much better than what it really is. And it's the carrot that he just continues to lead us by. And it's not until we develop deep, deep, deep within our hearts this reverence for God. It's called the fear of the Lord within the scriptures. It's not until we come to that place where we say, come hell, come high water. I'm going to fear the Lord. I'm going to reverence God higher and greater than anything else in this world. And I'm going to simply walk by faith through obedience to what I know to be true. And I know that as we do that, God will empower us to obey what he's calling us to do. And if we don't have the fear of the Lord if we don't have a reverence for God where we hold him in high esteem, then Satan will continue to bamboozle us throughout our entire existence. And when it's all said and done, we will go to heaven. I love this scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I was thinking of it on the way to church this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says... In verse 4, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. We want to be found, as it says in the first verse in that chapter, verse 2, actually, the second verse, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. God is not calling you to walk my walk. God is not calling me to walk your walk. God is calling you to an individual race. And in that race, you win and you are the victor as you crucify the flesh. If you are led by the flesh and you let your flesh dominate, then you're dead out the gate. The only remedy, the only recipe for our flesh is death. And it looks like individuals might be winning around us as we submit to the will of God and we serve them in love and in kindness. It looks at times like people are winning, trust me, when it's all said and done and you stand before the Lord and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's for the life that you've been given and the relationships that you have with people and the obedience that God is calling you to, that that well done is either going to be said or not. It's not just church ministry, as we oftentimes think it is. It's your life, and every moment in your life that God is calling you into obedience 
whether it's your thoughts, your words, or your actions, because that's all you have. Your thoughts, your words, and your actions are commanded by God. So that's what we're going to be rewarded for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and Lord, we look forward to a time that is coming where the books will be clearly revealed the totality of what our life was worth and spent on. And Father, I pray that we would be those who would invest our lives in eternity. The time that we spend with loved ones, family, friends, the things that we do at our places of employment, at work, and how we work for you as, un- as unto you, our recreation time, our fun time, our downtime. I pray that it would all, Lord, be surrendered to you. And in the midst of it, that we would have a peace that surpasses understanding, a joy unspeakable, because those are the things that you promise. and Nothing or no one can take those things away. So, Father, I pray that we would live for eternal things, that we would have an eternal mindset and look to glorify you with the lives that you have given us. So, Lord, we thank you for that which is to come as we know that you keep good books. In Jesus' name, amen.